I've had a good time telling you about Henry Landworth. I've been rereading his autobiography, The Gift of Life, or Life as a Gift. He's such a fascinating guy. I love his story. How he was brought up in Poland back in the 1930s. A young Jewish boy in a good family. And how in 1939 the Nazis came along, swept up all of his family, put them in Auschwitz. His mother and his father would both die there. Miraculously, he and his sister would both survive. They would be in that concentration camp for five years. The things that they would experience, starvation, sickness, always facing death. I mean, it was so difficult. And yet they kept up their spirit, survived the war. But when Henry got out, it changed his fundamental values and the way he looked at life. He managed to get passage on a ship by working on a freighter to come to the United States. He had a couple of dollars in his pocket, could not speak English. He found his, some relatives where he could go and stay with them, and they started teaching him how to be a diamond cutter. He hated that, didn't want to do it. And before too long, he wound up getting a, a letter welcoming him to the United States and drafting him into the army. He then went and served in the army, and when he got out, he had a thing that was called the GI Bill he had never heard of, and it's what allowed him to go to school. He went and studied hotel management, and he got married, and when he got married, he went on a honeymoon down to Florida, and he loved it so much in Florida, he never came back. So there he got a job managing this new hotel that was about to open called the Starlight Motel there in uh, Cocoa Beach, Florida. It was the only hotel in Cocoa Beach, Florida, where NASA had just built Cape Canaveral. And so it was all the astronauts and all the press would come and stay at the Starlight Hotel. It wound up being a special place. He got to know Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom. Best friend became John Glenn. Got to know people like Walter Cronkite. The thing was, Henry was such a person of love. He was so compassionate, always thinking about the needs of his guests, always going out of his way to take care of them. It did incredibly well. So well that he was given the opportunity to buy in to some holiday inns that were failing down around this place called Orlando. He did so well, he was able to turn them around, buy into some other holiday inns, just as this new place called Disney World was opening. And so it was that Henry Landworth became a multimillionaire. This Polish-Jewish survivor of Auschwitz, coming to America and can't speak English, with dollars in his pocket, ultimately having such incredible success. But Henry didn't really care about things. No, he cared about life because he had been so close to losing it. So much so that 30 years ago, he knew a girl who wanted to come to Disney World. She had a terminal illness and all kinds of problems. They couldn't get it arranged and find a place to stay. And she died before they could make it happen. So he decided to create a place called Give Kids the World a place where children who had a terminal illness could come with their whole family to Orlando, stay for a week for free, and be able to make these memories and have all their physical needs met. 
Over the last 30 years, more than 150,000 families have come to give kids the world. It's been an incredible program that, that Henry just dedicated himself to and given so generously and made happen. And when you look at his life, and, and it sounds like something out of a movie, something that would be impossible. I mean, one of the stories that I love about Henry was after John Glenn had orbited the earth, it turned out that Henry was going up to Boston on some business, flying through New York. And as he was going through New York, there was all kinds of police and all this big hubbub going on. And he remembered this was the day that John Glenn and all the other six astronauts were going to have this ticker tape parade there in New York. And because Henry loved all of them, he decided, I'm going to go be a part and cheer on my friends. Changed his airline ticket, went down to the parade. He got near kind of where the parade was about to start. And there some of NASA's security looked at him and went, Henry, what are you doing here? I mean, they all knew him. He said, I'm, I'm here to cheer in the parade. And he said, come on this side of the rope. So he came on to the other side of the rope and they said, let's go over and see John and Annie. So they went over and saw John Glenn, his wife Annie, and John said, Henry, I'm glad you're here. My kids are in the fourth car. Why don't you ride with them? And so here's Henry Landworth in the fourth car in a ticker tape parade, waving to all the crowds. Right along with all the seven astronauts, John Glenn leading the way. I mean, you, you look at his life and it's just magical, all that happens and what he does. You really look at his life and you can't help but think, it's impossible. But as Jesus said, what's impossible with men is possible with God. I love Henry's life because when you look at it, you see a man of incredible faith. A man who is so grateful for God. And in spite of all the suffering and the struggles and the loss, he still felt so grateful for life. He still had a love for people. He had this passion to serve and try to bless others. I mean, I look at his life that has had so many ups and such deep downs. And yet you see a person who has had such meaning and joy. He's left a legacy. Now, I look at someone like Henry Landworth and I think, we really all want the same kind of life. Fundamentally, we all want meaning in our work when we struggle and work hard and sacrifice, in our play, when we laugh, when we cry. Somehow we all want meaning in our life. I think we all want purpose, a reason to get out of bed. A God-given purpose where you give yourself to something bigger than yourself. I think we all want a sense of joy. Not just happiness. You want joy. You want peace. You want peace being able to face the death of someone you love or face your own death and have a peace in the promise of eternal life. And yet I think so often when you and I look at our lives, we think, how could that be possible? To have meaning and purpose, joy, peace. 
What is impossible with man is possible with God. This morning, I want to start a sermon series for the season of Lent. Today's the first Sunday in Lent, and I want to call it Impossible Possibilities. What are all those things that we feel are impossible in our lives? Meaning and purpose and joy or whatever it might be, only to discover that they are possible with God. And I want us to go through and look at some of these fundamental issues we all struggle with. Things like, am I worthy to be loved by God? Is there any way that God could ever love and accept me? Is there any way that I could ever have a God-given dream? To have purpose with my life? Is there any way that I could find strength when life is so hard and it feels so difficult and the nights are so dark? How do I get strength? Can I find peace? Can I find peace when I'm facing death? Can I feel forgiven when I have failed and have a new beginning? Some of these things we wonder, are they possible in our lives? And I want us to look at how these impossible things are possible through Christ. And so I thought we should start today with what I really feel is the fundamental question every human being has to ask. And that is simply the question, am I lovable? Am I worthy of God's love? Can I be accepted and loved by others? It is a fundamental question. You know, this coming October the 31st, we're going to celebrate the 500th anniversary where Martin Luther went and tacked 95 theses on the door to Castle in Wittenberg. And he didn't know it at the time, but he was lighting a match to a tinderbox that would start the Protestant Reformation that would literally change the world. Martin Luther struggled with this fundamental question. Am I worthy to be loved by God? You see, Martin Luther grew up there in Germany around the turn of the century in the 1500s. I mean, his parents were typical Germans of that day. In the end, they wound up being very strict, very stern, very conservative, very frugal. They loved their son, but they believed in the old saying, spoil the rod, uh, spare the rod, spoil the child. So they made sure not to spoil Martin. They did not spare the rod. They beat him all the time. He was always in trouble and being thrashed. I mean, once with his mother, she was making a pie and he was a small kid and he reached up on the table and got a nut off the table and she accused him of stealing and she thrashed him for stealing. When you went to school, if you made mistakes on your work, you weren't just corrected. First you were beaten and then you were corrected. Now growing up, Martin Luther came to believe that authority was for the purpose of watching over you and seeing when you did wrong and you stepped out of line and it would get you. It's really how he started to feel about God. He was raised in a religious family, but God was for the purpose of watching you. Wherever you went and whatever you did, you stepped out of line, God would get you. Martin never felt good enough. 
As I said, his father loved him and worked hard and provided the opportunity for Martin to go to college and to go to law school, be a lawyer. And so Martin was going to college and being a lawyer, and he was coming home one day on a break towards home, and he got caught in a thunderstorm, lightning, thunder. And so Martin ran and he hid under a tree. Now, that's not the smartest thing you do in a thunderstorm. But he ran, he hid under a tree, and sure enough, lightning struck that very tree. He could hear it, feel it, sizzle. And he knew that God was trying to hit him with that lightning bolt. I mean, he fell to his knees and said, if you don't kill me, I promise I'll become a monk instead of a lawyer. He didn't die. Dropped out of law school, came home and told his dad, I'm going to the monastery. Didn't make his father very happy. He wanted a lawyer, not a monk. But he went and became a monk. When he got there, he started struggling so much. Again, he did not feel worthy. He knew he was failing all the time. He took on the most menial task there in the monastery to do the hard work. He was always singing the hymns, reading the prayers, chanting. But he still never felt good enough to be loved by God. So he kept going to confession. And he wanted to get penance. What did he have to do? He'd go to confession over and over. He didn't really have anything to confess. The priest said, listening to Martin do confession was like being stoned with popcorn. But he kept going. He kept confessing. He felt the sin or the body was sinful. So he would flog himself to try to hurt the flesh. At nighttime, there in his stone cell where he would sleep, he would strip off naked and lie on the stone coal floor to punish the flesh. Later he would say, I kept trying to catch the Holy Spirit, but all I really caught was pneumonia. No, he kept trying. I'm going to do whatever it takes. He drove the rest of the monks crazy And so they finally said, you know, Martin, what would help you find the Holy Spirit is a pilgrimage. You need to go somewhere. (laughs) And so they sent him on a pilgrimage to Rome. And he went to Rome and there he crawled on his hands and knees to all the holy shrines. And he bloodied his knees and his hands as he went to worship at these holy sites. And in the end, he still did not feel good enough. Finally came back home, and one night he was reading through Paul's letter to the Romans in the first chapter when he read and said, And the righteous shall be justified by faith. And the thought hit him. It is by faith alone, in God's grace alone, that we are saved. That it's nothing you can do. It's not about how good you are. It is by faith alone, in God's grace alone, that we are saved. That night, Martin Luther said, I felt like I was born again. It was a whole new feeling. I was set free. To discover that God loved me, even me, not because of anything I've done, 
Not because of anything I didn't do. God has chosen to love me. To have that experience where you discover that it's not because of what you do. You can't earn God's love. You can't be good enough. No, God's love is offered as a free gift because you are His child. It is by faith alone, we call that trust. It is by trusting in God's love alone that changes your world. For Martin Luther, he knew he had found life, eternal life. Which is exactly what this rich young ruler was asking when he came to Jesus. In our scripture lesson today, we're reading a story that took place both in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three. And it really is Matthew who tells us that he was young, and it's Luke who tells us he's a ruler. All three tell us that he is rich. And so we have the rich young ruler, the person who has affluence, who has appearance, who has authority. He has all the things you and I want, power, wealth, appearance, And yet something didn't feel right. He had it all, but something didn't feel right. And so he comes to Jesus and he said, What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the fundamental question. What's going to define us? Who are we? Jesus told him two things. First of all, Jesus said, Follow the commandments. You know the commandments. And he lists out five. Don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't kill, honor your father and mother. Jesus is quoting the Ten Commandments. But the commandments that he quotes are the last commandments. The first of the Ten Commandments, the first four, talk about how do we love God. It's the last six commandments that talk about how are we supposed to treat each other. And so when Jesus is asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, follow the commandments. And he lists the ones that talk about how we're supposed to treat each other. Now please get this. I do not believe how we treat each other is going to earn God's love. But I do believe when we treat each other well, as we are asked to do, It will affect your relationship with God. It opens your heart to experience God's love. It will change your relationship with God when you treat other people in a kind and a loving way. I was reading a story, a fascinating story of a lady named Emma Lazarus. Emma, um, she was born back in the 1850s, born in New York, born into a good Jewish family. Her father was from Portugal, made a fortune in sugar, and came over to live here with his wife in New York. They had six children. Emma was one of them. She was raised in a good family of faith. But when she got into her 20s, she just kind of sort of drifted from the faith. I mean, she had all this money. She was running in high society circles. I mean, she got to go do all the special things. She was treated wonderful. She was beautiful. Life was great. She was having all the fun money could buy. And she just kind of drifted from the faith. Well, it was on July 29, 1881, that something happened 
that was going to change her life. She didn't know it at the moment, and it would be a few months, but it would change her life. For July 29, 1881, the first boatload of Jewish Russian immigrants landed in New York. You see, what had happened was Tsar Nicholas had been assassinated. And when the Tsar was assassinated, it turned out there were ten people who were part of the plot, and one of them was Jewish. And because it was found out that one was Jewish, they believed all Jews were behind this. And so Russia began this program in order to exterminate the Jews. 20,000 Russian homes would be burned. This huge persecution of Jews broke out. And so they began trying to flee. And the first boatload of 250 landed there at Ellis Island in July 21st, 1881. Over the next 30 years... Two million Russian Jews would immigrate to America and literally change the face of our country. They came. And they could only get so far as Wall Island. They couldn't really get their way on into the United States. And so as more and more came, the conditions began to grow deplorable. And it was Emma, several months later, who heard about it and decided to go see for herself. Now, she had nothing in common with these people. She didn't have, she didn't have the same language. There's certainly not economics or, or social standing. The only thing they had in common was their faith. And she went to go see these people. And what she discovered was how bad it was for them and how they were living. But she also discovered their incredible joy. She found these people were singing the songs of Zion. They were thrilled to be out of Russia, to come to America, to be free, where they could worship without fear of persecution. They were here. They felt safe. No, there was this great joy in their spirit in spite of the fact they had so little and it was difficult. It so moved Emma that she went back home and started reading her scriptures again. She started worshiping again. It led her back to God. And as she kept going and meeting these people, she came to love them. She started spending her own money to try to help them. She started writing newspaper articles to call attention to what was happening. She wrote magazine articles. She went to Washington, D.C. to lean on all of her um, connections to try to do something to help them. She was an amazing writer and a poet. And it was there in those 1880s that She sat down and she wrote a poem thinking about her Jewish Russian immigrant friends. And I want to read you the end of her poem. It says, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these homeless tempests tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. It's the words that you find on the Statue of Liberty. You see, this was the time when France was sending us this statue. And they agreed to pay for the statue, but we had to agree to pay for the base. And so Emma decided to write a poem to be auctioned off that would help to raise the money for the base of the Statue of Liberty. It was ultimately sold for what would be like $37,000 in today's money. 
And it was those words that are then put on the base of the Statue of Liberty. Send to me the wretched refuge of your teeming shore. Send the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. An opportunity, a land where people are treated with respect and dignity and given the opportunity of a new beginning. It's who we are as a nation. Emma became passionate. It became her calling, her purpose. She gave herself so much to it. But she developed cancer. And a couple of years after she had written the poem, at the age of 37, she died. But not before she found meaning and purpose and joy and left a legacy, eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, you know the commandments. Follow them. It's the way you're called to treat one another. But the rich young ruler said, I followed all these since my youth. What else must I do? And so Jesus said, number two, go sell all you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And the young man was very rich and he turned away very sad. And Jesus said, how hard will it be for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? And the disciples said, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. It's fascinating. When you look at this story, it's important to understand this is not a story that's telling us about money, what we're supposed to do, that we're all supposed to give away all of our money to the poor because you and I know if we all give all of our money away to the poor, we become the poor and the problem's still there. Economically, it doesn't work. It's also fascinating to see that Jesus doesn't ask this out of anybody else. This is not a universal principle. He doesn't ask this out of Zacchaeus. He didn't say, Zacchaeus, you need to give away everything you have to the poor. No, this was a specific statement to a specific individual because of their issue. The issue simply was, when you and I have wealth, when you and I have good standing, when we have achievements and accomplishments, it is easy to rely on oneself to feel like I have earned my goodness, I have earned acceptance, I am secure in what I have, rather than trusting in God's grace for your value, your worth, your security. It is easy to trust more and more in oneself. And the more we have, the easier it is to trust in ourselves rather than trust in God. That's why Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. Not because it's bad being rich. It's just easier and easier not to trust God first. It is fascinating when you look at that statement. Some scholars said, you know, there was a hole in the wall in Jerusalem that was very narrow. And the only way a camel could get through there was if there was no rider and they had no pack on their back, they could get through this narrow opening in the gate. But scholars said there really is no no evidence of that. It was origin, 
one of the early Christian fathers in the second century, he noticed that if you looked at the word camel, there's one letter difference between that and the word rope. And is it just possible that one of the scribes put in the wrong letter and that maybe Jesus said, it's easier for a rope to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man in the kingdom of heaven versus a camel? I don't know. It doesn't really matter. The point is, it is so easy for us to rely upon ourselves to try to earn our goodness and God's grace, to earn that love, to earn our security, rather than to trust in God's grace. And that's where it begins. God's free grace for you and me. Some of you will recognize the name Anna Marie Alberghetti. Those of you who are younger may not remember that name, Anna Marie Alberghetti. She's now 80 years old. It's about 20 years ago I got to hear her sing and perform. She came here to Oklahoma City. I was in the men's dinner club. She was the program that night. She was amazing and she talked to us about her life. Anna Marie Alberghetti, born in 1936 in Italy. Her father was a concert master for the Rome uh, Opera. I mean, he was quite the accomplished singer. Her mother was a great pianist. And her father decided when she was born, she was going to be someone who could sing in incredible ways. So when she was born, he let her cry in her bed in order to strengthen the lung capacity. And he said it was perfectly okay because even when she cried, it sounded so beautiful. Right, right. Even the crying sounded so beautiful, he said, and she developed her lung capacity. And he began giving her voice lessons as a small child. And when she was six years old, he felt she was ready. He had the orchestra playing on the Isle of Rhodes, and there she made her debut singing with a 100-piece orchestra. She was great. She was great. She began touring with them through Italy and then through Europe. And then her father saw a a, a movie all about Carnegie Hall in America. And he decided that's where she needed to make her American debut. So he sold the house, sold everything they had to raise money for passage for the family and enough money to rent Carnegie Hall. They landed in New York. They did not have enough money for a roof over their head or food to eat, but they got passage and they could rent Carnegie Hall. And so they stayed with a friend in their apartment and they waited for Anna to sing. Thirteen years old. So she made her debut in Carnegie Hall at 13 and next day the New York Times would write, she sounds like an angel. Well, Ed Sullivan picked up on it And he invited her to be on our TV show that Sunday night. And she sang on Ed Sullivan, 13. And he got so many phone calls that he decided to do what he never did, and that's invite her back the next Sunday night. She ultimately would appear on Ed Sullivan more than 50 times. But after the second time she was on Ed Sullivan, there's this guy named Frank Zappa out in Hollywood. And he saw her. And he flew her out to Hollywood and signed her to a movie contract. And soon she was making movies with Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin and Bob Hope and Bing Crosby. And as she matured and her family put together this musical act, 
and they went to Las Vegas and booked into Las Vegas. And she continued to grow and she took acting lessons. She wanted to go to New York. She auditioned for this play called Carousel. And she got the lead. And in 1962, she won the Tony Award. She was now all of 26 years old. 26. Been on TV, movies, Vegas, and now a Tony Award. 26. And it was so fascinating. She talked to us that night and she said, you know, I was at 26 years old when I finally realized that I really was struggling with an inferiority complex and I was struggling with my self-esteem. I thought, what? TV, movies, Broadway, and you have an inferiority complex? You're struggling with your self-esteem? Her struggle was still trying to prove that she was worthy of her father's love and all his sacrifice, that she was good enough to be loved. It wasn't until she confronted the issue in her life and began to discover there was a free gift that she began to heal and be set free. It's the struggle we all have. We all wonder, am I good enough to be loved? Am I worthy enough to be loved? The promise is, it is by faith alone, in God's grace alone. It is by trusting in God's love for you that you discover you're set free. It's not because of what you do. It's not because of what you've earned. It's because you're a child of God. It's God's free gift to you. I know that sounds impossible. But with man, it is impossible. But with God, it is possible. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.